Let's pray. Loving Father, Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is alive and active by the Holy Spirit, sharper than any double-edged sword. And we pray now, Lord, that you will soften our hearts to receive your word with thanksgiving and then by your Holy Spirit, help us to put it into practice to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that there are angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. I mentioned Moore College earlier, which is where I studied and where Adam is studying now. But before I, uh, before I studied there, I worked for my best friend's dad in fire and explosion protection. And you should know that, just to be clear, it was our, both our companies were trying to avoid and prevent fire and explosion, not create them. Though, there was a time when we went out to a testing facility at Londonderry and we used to create explosions and measure them in a kind of controlled steel vessel and that was very fun. And uh, feel free to ask me about that later on. Creating explosions for your job, pretty fun. Um, I had uh, my, best mate, my best mate's dad, let's call him John because that was his name, he was the director of both of the companies and then there was a managing director, kind of my bosses, uh, Steve was in charge of the fire side and Tony was in charge of the uh, explosion side. Now, often, not every week, but often on a Friday, we'd, John would take us out for lunch and he'd shout the staff lunch. It was probably about six or seven or eight of us uh, would go to the Chinese restaurant across the road, the Golden Dragon, just a, like a textbook name for a Chinese restaurant. And uh, we would have lunch there, John would pay for us, it was really good. And after about 40 minutes, Steve would start to fidget in his seat and that was the kind of cue for all the fire side of things, office staff to go back to the office and get back to work. And then about 15 minutes later, he'd start to fidget in his seat again and that was his cue for me uh, to go back to work at the office. But John would pipe up and say, oh yeah, Steve, yeah, you better, you better head back now. Um, Gavin and I just have a couple more things to talk about, we'll be right behind you which used to really get up Steve's nose and put him out and uh, frustrate him uh, a lot. And then John and I would proceed to sit there for another half an hour and keep talking because, you know, I was his son's best mate and I was special. And I've got to tell you, I liked it. 
I liked that feeling of importance. I liked that feeling of being significant. Uh, I didn't like putting Steve out and annoying him, but it did. Um, but I liked the feeling of being important uh, and significant, despite the fact that it infuriated my direct boss. Um, I enjoyed that feeling, and I think that's pretty normal. I think we like to feel special. We like to feel important. Uh, we like to feel significant uh, in the world. It's very natural. It's a God-given human instinct, I think, to, <coughs> to want to matter to people. We like that we matter to people, that, that we're important to other people. One of the greatest dehumanizing punishments that you can inflict on a human being is imprisonment, is taking them out of the world, out of society, and putting them in jail. And don't get me wrong, as often I'm glad we do that to some people, um, and it's good and right. But what it says to that person is our society doesn't need you in it anymore. We can function perfectly well without you in our society. We're going to put you in jail and take you out of society. We'll get along just fine. You're not that important. Uh, to our society. Worse than that is solitary confinement when we take them out of their new society, their separated off society, and put them on their own and say that even this society separated off from the rest of society doesn't need you. We're going to put you on your own in jail. And if that's dehumanising, and it is, then close to the pinnacle of punishment for a human being, the, the ultimate way to say to a human being, you are so unimportant, so insignificant in our culture that we're going to execute you and we're going to go on just fine without you. So unimportant and so insignificant to our culture are you. We don't need you in it at all, ever again. In the ancient world, the most unimportant and insignificant people were criminals and the state, the Roman Empire, did not waste valuable resources imprisoning people so much back in those days. You have to feed them and look after them. They would execute people. And they would execute people often on a crude Roman cross on a highway or a hill for all to see and be warned lest they commit the same crimes against the state. Our Lord, our glorious transfigured, glowing, shining Lord, all-powerful, almighty, was willing to humble himself and make himself the pinnacle of world insignificance and unimportance, insignificant and unimportant in the eyes of the world, and go to the cross for the sake of you and me, for the sake of sinners. But at no point, not even when he was forsaken by God on the cross as he cried out, was Jesus unimportant or insignificant in the eyes of his loving Father in heaven. Jesus said, this is my son whom I love. This was the voice that came from heaven at the transfiguration. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Such was his importance and significance to his Father in heaven. We've known since chapter 16 that as disciples, we are supposed to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And here again, Jesus helps us to understand what that means. What does that look like? How do you do that? How do I deny myself, take up my metaphorical cross and follow Jesus? What does that look like? And today, he says, in order to do that, 
We must become like a little child. That means we must be willing to become insignificant and unimportant and powerless and useless in the eyes of the world in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because that's what little children were in the first century. They were loved, but they weren't important and they weren't significant to the world at large. What does it look like for a full-grown, educated, wealthy adult to become like a little child before Jesus? How do we do that? And I wonder, are you willing to do that? And are you willing, perhaps, to become unimportant and insignificant in the eyes of the world? Maybe you already are. Are you willing to stay that way for the sake of Jesus? Big questions. All right, let's dive in. Becoming like a little child is what Jesus requires of his disciples. It's not a suggestion. It's a command from him here in chapter 18. Look again at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him. He placed the child among them and he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, following the transfiguration of Jesus, I'm guessing the disciples are feeling pretty confident that they're with Jesus. He's transfigured. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than Moses. And things are looking up for the followers of Jesus, the disciples are asking. And so they start to ask him, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Like, obviously, you're the greatest, Jesus. But after you, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be your right-hand men? And they're hoping that it's them. And they start vying for the top spots in the kingdom of heaven of heaven and Jesus as he often does has a highly unexpected response uh, to this question from his hapless witless disciples at this point they get better later right now they're thoroughly confused now imagine the scene there's 13 men there 12 disciples and Jesus standing around having a conversation a lot of them are ex-fishermen they're big they're burly they're strong they're stinky they're ex-fishermen And Jesus finds a little child, not just a child, but a little one, and he brings the little child in amongst this group of men. And the child looks up at the men, and the men look down at the child. And the the illustration is clear. Amongst this group of big men, this little child looks weak and looks powerless and has no real agency to change their situation whatsoever. And this is Jesus' point. In the first century, children didn't have agency. They didn't have the ability to make plans for themselves. They were dependent upon their adults in their life. They relied on the adult's in their life, to clothe them, to feed them, to take them wherever they wanted to go. Jesus says, if you want to enter my kingdom, you must be like the little children before me. Recognise your lack of agency before me, your powerlessness before me. 
adults assert themselves. Adults dress how they want and take themselves where they want to go. But Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you need to become like a little child before me, relying on me, not relying on your own strength and intelligence and power to generate your own agency, but rather relying on him. And it's not natural. Not even when we become Christians is it natural. He's saying you need to change. He says you need to change and become like a little child in your relationship with Jesus. It's a process, but an important one. He makes it clear that unless we change, we'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Self-assertion, self-preservation is natural. Feeling important and feeling significant is desired. But Jesus says we need to change and depend upon him, even if it means we become unimportant and insignificant to the world around us. To become like a little child before Jesus is to depend on him rather than yourself. And it's a daily commitment. Depending on Jesus is a daily commitment. One of the ways that we do this is by humbling ourselves before him and therefore others. As he has done, used his power for others, we too seek to serve others in all we do. What are the different places in your life that you mix and move? Just call them to mind right now. Your work, your home, your community, your extended family, school, uni. Jesus says, becoming like a little child means looking to serve others in those places where you mix and move. Humble yourself before him and look to serve others in those places that you mix and move. What's that look like for you? It's to be humble. Jesus demands humility. A child is unable to assert themselves in the world. They don't have the strength or the wealth or the power. Jesus says, even though you might have strength and wealth and power, you need to humble yourself before him and then use your strength and wealth and power for the good of others. And there's a dire warning for those who not only fail to be humble before him but look to exploit the weak using their power. He doesn't pull any punches here, and I'm glad. Look at verse 5. Whoever welcomes one such child, one of these little ones, in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. So Jesus broadens his petition 
to not only become like a little child, but to welcome little children, or as he says, little ones, those who believe in me. He's actually broadened it out from not just children, but all Christians, and particularly those who are weak or powerless. And he makes the extraordinary statement that to care for such a person is to welcome him. To care for a little one is to welcome Jesus himself. Jesus finds these little ones important and significant. So to welcome them is to welcome him. Such is his love for them. Does that make sense? To care for, to be kind to my children is to be kind to me. And to to be mean to my children will offend me as well and this is the same thing jesus cares for these little ones so much that to welcome them is to welcome him and conversely to lead them astray is to offend him personally those who believe in him one of the things i love about our church is our high priority on loving children well caring for them discipling them creating teaching programs that are aimed to teach them where they're at, at their age and stage. More importantly, our church has a very, very high priority on safe ministry. All our leaders are safe ministry trained. They've been police checked. They've been taught how it is, what we do to keep children safe. Never one-on-one with a child. Never one leader on their own with a child. There's certain ratios of leaders to children which we seek to maintain. We have a very, very high priority on protecting and caring for Jesus' little ones who are down in the classrooms as we speak. And I'm really thankful for that. If your safe ministry training is going to lapse soon, or it already has, make sure you... Get on top of it and renew it. It has to be renewed every three years. From the great privilege of welcoming Jesus himself as we welcome children, and what a, what a joy that is. Like if you're teaching kids church or creation, to love them is to love Jesus himself. He makes that clear, which is really cool. Jesus now makes this dire warning. Should we cause one of Jesus' precious little ones, to sin, not only children, but certainly children, all of his, those who believe in him, should we cause one to sin through deliberately leading them astray or through even laziness on our part that leads them astray, it would be better to have a heavy millstone tied around our neck, not a little one, a heavy one, and be tossed into the sea, not a lake, the sea. In other words, Jesus is saying our fate will be inescapable if we do such thing. And the horror is he promises this will happen in the world. People will lead his beloved little ones astray. But woe to the one who does. Jesus warning us against all who lead his beloved people into sin, especially those who are lowly or weak or marginalised, powerless like children are in the, in the presence of adults. Those with little ability and power to defend themselves, Jesus says, you're better off dead than leading one of my little ones astray. We must and we do take 
the caring of the weak and vulnerable extremely seriously. He goes on to then say, also, ensure that you don't sin. I think the pathway to in caring for others in our church is to ensure that we're living, living a godly and holy life. We are careful that we don't fall into sin ourselves. Verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. Better for you to enter life, that is eternal life, maimed or crippled, than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Jesus here is blessing us with an eschatological view of life. He's helping us see the eschaton, the end of all things. He's helping us look forward to the end to inform how we live today. Looking forward to the life to come, looking forward to the life to come, to help inform how we live today. It doesn't actually matter what the world thinks of you. It doesn't matter if you're unimportant or insignificant in the eyes of the world, whether you get invited to the lunch or not. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of you. All that matters is what God thinks of you, your loving Heavenly Father, that He is pleased with you, that He will smile upon you on that final day through faith in Jesus, and welcome you in to heavenly places forevermore. We live but 80 or 90 years if we're blessed. All too often our lives are cut tragically short. And we're all too aware of that this year. But the life to come is not 100 years or even a thousand years. When we've been there 10,000 years, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. Eternity is forever. Therefore, if your hand's causing you to do something that might dishonor your God, that might turn his face away from you, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Better for you to enter eternity without your foot or hand than to miss out on eternity. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Or at least, men and maybe women, gouge out the object of your sin that's causing you to sin, the object of your gaze that's causing you to sin. Friends, we need to gouge out pornography from our church. It's running rampant like a wildfire, tragically, through our world and even through our church. And we need to gouge it out and take extreme measures to gouge out this terrible sin that ensnares many. And if there's something that you struggle with, I ask you, please speak to someone myself, someone else you know who will help you and not make you feel ashamed, care for you and lead you to places and people who can help you to escape 
this terrible sin. And there are many places. Covenant Eyes, X-Watch, two places to start to get help. It's a terrible ensnaring sin. It's powerful and you ought not be ashamed, but you ought to seek help if you're struggling in this way. Perhaps for you, the sin is greed or it's materialism or slander or gossip. Jesus says, don't self-mutilate, but take extreme measures to gouge sin out of your life because sin can lead us efficiently into the fires of hell. Fourthly, we have this parable, a common parable that's mentioned a few times in the Gospels, and it's a wonderful picture of God's love for all of his people, especially the little ones. Look at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off? Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it truly, I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So not despise the little ones. So not despise people at church, those who are weak, powerless, struggling, lowly, sad, crushed in spirit, young, elderly, those with whom there is a power disjuncture. Do not despise them. Even if our culture around us despises our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will not despise them because our Lord does not despise them. And again, our church doesn't. I hope you don't despise other people, whoever they are. I hope you love them and welcome them warmly, whoever they are, particularly if they're sad or lowly or struggling or, or a bit weak for whatever reason. The example here is youth. A word to the older youth, don't despise the younger youth, but love them and care for them as Jesus loves you. Why? Because the angels are watching. Now, I'm probably going to get questions about angels. If you've got questions about angels, please ask your questions about the angels. Uh, a couple of people asked me last week when I preached this about angels, and now I've got this great little document that I can send out to you about angels. I can't cover it all now. There's a whole bunch of uh, appearances of angels in the Bible. I'm confident this is not saying that each child has a guardian angel, even though that seems to be a common misconception that can go around churches, that every child has a guardian angel. When they lose their guardian angel, I don't know. Is it 18, which is Australian, or is it 21 in America? I don't know. Are they American angels or Australian angels? I don't know. I don't believe it's talking about a guardian angel for each child. There are some times in the Bible where angels were sent to um, minister particularly uh, to a certain place, uh, to certain nations in Daniel, uh, uh, to Jesus himself. Uh, they ministered to him. To Peter was mistakenly an angel uh, in Acts. Um, when he knocked on the, got out of prison, knocked on the door, and the little girl thought it was Rhoda, thought it was an angel, but no, no, it was Peter. Oh, 
Why did she think it might be an angel? We don't know. What's going on here is, is the idea, the, the human idea that God is so busy that he might not notice if one of his little ones is despised, but we don't need to worry because the angels, they're always seeing God's face. They all let him know. Now, of course, God will not miss anything that happens in the world. He's predetermined everything. The point is that God and the angels, all of them, are all making sure that God's little ones are cared for and God's little ones are not despised. There's no way that we can despise one of God's little ones and God won't notice. Such is God's great love for his little ones. And then we go into this story. If God was caring for a hundred sheep and one of them would wander off, he would go and look for the one. He would inconvenience him himself and leave the 99 and go and look for the little one that was lost and find it. And when he found it, he would be overjoyed. Such is his love for all of his people and bring the little one back. And I think that's a real comfort to us If you are feeling lowly or you are feeling downcast or you are feeling marginalised or you are feeling unimportant or insignificant in the world, in your workplace, in your family even perhaps, you are significant and important in the eyes of God. And should you be led astray or wander off, he will come and find you. He will notice and he will find you and he will bring you back and his joy will be so great, even greater than the 99 who remained safe, who he's happy about as well. But his joy will exceed even his joy for the safe ones to know that you've been brought back such is God's love for all who believe in him. This is what our God is like. He loves all of his people and he longs for all to be cared for. Jesus' instruction to us is to become like little children in our dependence upon him. We need to depend upon him in all things to see ourselves before him like a little child who is powerless and helpless and totally dependent upon him in all things. How dependent you are upon God will be reflected in your Bible reading and prayer habits. At the conference, went to a conference on Monday, Carol was there, um, And Paul Grimmond, who's a teacher in Moore College, talked about there's no gap between God and his word, that he's perfectly true and perfectly honest. And as we come to his word, we see his character exactly. If I was to ask you who you are and you were to tell me, there might be a gap. There's probably going to be a gap between what you tell me and who you actually are. You, there's some things you might not want to share. There's some things you might just be a bit naive about, about yourself. Blind spots in yourself you don't realise. There's a gap between what you say and who you actually are. There's no gap 
between God and his word. As we come to his word, we come to him. So come to him and hear his word. I was, I was extra energised in my, my desire to read God's word because we actually come to God by the power of his Holy Spirit as we come to his word and depend on him in prayer, friends. Our prayer lives reflect our dependence upon God. If you're a parent, you know how often your children ask you for something. It's pretty often. And that's good and right because they're dependent upon you. They need you as we're supposed to need God. Humble yourself before him. You are significant to him and important. Secondly, use your strength that you do have then for the good of others in the world. Becoming like little children doesn't make us weak. It makes us recognise who we are before God. But in our humility before him, we then are sent out to use our strength for the good of others. I think as we, as we practice serving others and loving others, we grow in our humility. And as we come before God, we realise that he has our backs. He's providing for our every need. We feel strengthened to love others. I don't need to be selfish anymore. I'm sorted. God has me sorted. I'm freed to serve and love others. The arrogant person seeks power from others. The humble person gives to others. The classic example being Jesus. Read Philippians 2. Use your God-given strengths and abilities and power for the good of others. It probably won't be recognised by the world. The greatest Christians who ever lived are unheard of in the eyes of the world, unimportant, insignificant. But we, as followers of Jesus, use our strengths and our gifts, particularly for those little ones, those who follow Jesus who are struggling or weak or powerless in some way, most certainly the children. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for his teaching here and his instruction to us to become like little children. God, we pray that by your Spirit you'll humble us, help us see ourselves as you see us. Powerless, weak, spiritually bankrupt sinners who are loved and significant and important in your eyes. May we depend on you through your word and prayer every day. And may you use us and motivate us to use our strength and our power in those places in which we mix. Lord, help us to recall to mind again those places in our lives in which we mix and move, our homes, our schools, university, our workplaces, our extended family, our neighbourhood. Use us, Lord, to serve, to humbly consider others' needs more important than our own. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.